Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Stephen Lin. Dr. Lin is a functional dentist who focuses on the mouth-body connection. He has a special interest in understanding dental disease through nutritional principles. This includes ancestral nutrition, the oral and gut microbiome, and epigenetics. Dr. Lin is also a TEDx speaker and author of the international best-selling book called The Dental Diet, The Surprising Link Between Your Teeth, Real Food, and Life-Changing Natural Health. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on to the show today. Hey guys, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Right. So yeah, I've been following you for a little while and I love the work that you publish, uh, such informative articles and uh, information about dental health and general health and how the two are linked. And so today, I, th- I mean, there's so many topics we can talk about, but I think um, I want to dive in more into nutrition, food and how that affects our our mouth, but then how that, I guess, affects us systemically, our whole body. So my first question for you would be, looking at the first food that most people get exposed to which is breast milk and breastfeeding and your thoughts around how that influences our our teeth and our gums and our mouth yeah breastfeeding has a very profound impact on our dental health and probably the most profound uh in that where dietary guidelines probably really should be based around teeth and our mouth and the reason is because you re- we really get some of the, the uh, most powerful messages from the health of our body from our dental health. And so a child, for instance, uh, that is eat, uh, drinking uh, uh, bottled formula uh, um, so feed and, uh, for instance, not having breastfeeding, we've had a lot of problems with these kind of food for a long time now. Uh, there's actually principles in breastfeeding that are formative to their dental development. And that includes the nutrients that grow strong, healthy teeth, but also that grow the uh, the nutritive uh, habits that grow the jaw as well. So the upper and lower um, jaw bones that house the teeth. So breastfeeding, there are some studies that show that uh, kids that breastfeed decrease their risk of braces. So they actually have wider jaws. And this is a big factor I think we have in uh, in nutritional guidelines today is that we don't factor in dental health and really uh, orthodontic braces and kids that need braces uh, and they have crooked teeth uh, is largely due to eating the wrong thing. And this was kind of my journey into this whole area and the breast milk and, and the process of uh, extracting breast milk from a mother's breast really does allow us to um, to see how chewing, how the nutrients, including the fat soluble vitamins, other to a child, and even the epigenome, where we know, for instance, uh, kids that don't breastfeed, they actually lose epigenetic markers that will predispose them to conditions like up to diabetes and obesity later in life. So there's a profound dental, but then systemic uh, roll on effect. If uh, kids fed, and it's a great way to understand in a very simplistic way with very simplistic um, principles our nutrition should whole body. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think 
what my question would be too is just having learned a little bit more about listening to some of your other talks of breast breastfeeding and how it it shapes the palate and that was amazing so the, the actual the sucking effect that happens when a baby latches onto the breast d- creates a more a more optimal shape of of the top of our mouth and do babies not get that then when they do bottle feeding yeah absolutely so a very quick self dental exam everyone can give themselves is to look at the palate and look at the shape of the palate or if you have a child check the uh check the the shape and the height the um the general kind of um color as well of, of the palate so just looking up into the roof of the mouth. Now, palates should be, by definition, wide and U-shaped and flat. And that means that the maxilla bone, which the palate is the bottom of, which is, you know, it's the roof of the mouth, but it's actually the floor of the maxilla bone. That means that the maxilla bone is wide and developed. And so the palate is a very easy way to, to check the development of the maxilla. And so you'll see people today, adults and children alike, with very narrow uh, palettes and and so what we'll, we can see is, is that instead of being a u-shape there will be more of a v shape and that's due to the um during uh, childhood development not getting the forces that actually expand the palate out and that all comes from the oral cavity and so it starts with breastfeeding where the child uh, presses the mother's nipple up against the roof of the palate and those forces actually act to begin to um, to expand the, uh, the the maxilla bone and then create space for the teeth. And so we've seen orthodontic braces as a way to uh, correct a, a crooked dental arch. Well, actually, it's, it's a growth and development problem where we haven't grown properly. And the first messages that a child's jaw and mouth and teeth get to grow and develop wide dental arches is via breast milk and the food that uh, we provide them early in life. And so this continues right throughout life as well. And so studies uh, of anthropological uh, nature show that once we move to civilization, we take ourselves away from uh, natural-based diet, then we begin to lose this wide jaw. We begin to get wisdom teeth infections, uh, crooked teeth, and it all begins with the forces that we exhibit on the mouth. And that's the tongue to the roof of the, the mouth, which is the palate, nasal breathing, and lips closed and and that homeostatic um posture is something that's taught to a baby during breastfeeding yeah so that's amazing that already at that stage how our, our the shape of our mouth is 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 being affected just by the way that we're feeding and then i guess now some people are already going to think oh but if i wasn't breastfed or if i'm not breastfeeding my baby um what should I do then so that I don't create that high palate effect? Would you already have any tips for, for anyone at this stage? Absolutely. So one of the there are two main forces on the palate. Well, actually, let's say three forces um, on the, the width of the palate. And remember, we can actually intervene. We can change the shape of an adult's palate now with an orthodontic device, but also by the, um, the postural uh, muscles of the mouth via... Um, physical messages of force and so that's the tongue posture that's the tongue to the roof of the mouth the the tongue should sit up in the palate and what that does if you think of the tongue as a muscle system it's it's uh, slung into the into the mandible bone but it also 
uh, connects to the base of the skull and also connects to the hyoid bone. It's one of the most complex and heavily innovated um, muscle groups of the of the body, and the human homunculus roughly has about forty percent devoted to the tongue. So it's incredibly important what you do and what you posture with your tongue. And the reason is that is because it opens your airways. But so when the tongue is pressed up against the roof of the palate, it has all these muscles tense as they should be. You have a straight posture. You don't have your head tipping forward, which many kids have now. And so having that tongue in the right position holds your airways open, but also exhibits a pushing force on the palate. And so that's what helps to uh, widen the palate in a child, but it can also reshape in a very minimal way uh, in adults. But we have to remember that there's a, a neurological calm being um, pressed uh, when, when, you, when you actually uh, push a, a pressure sensor up against the palate. And so it sends parasympathetic um, messages to the brain. So you actually send a calming um, autonomic um, message through your body by putting the tongue to the roof of the mouth. So that's one way to expand the palate. The other is by breathing through the nose. So we take roughly 20 to 30,000 breaths a day. And so when you breathe through the nose, it exhibits a force on the, on the maxilla, uh, especially in a child, to, to grow and widen. And so you know, I like to say that oxygen is the number one nutrient, but it, it, air, breathing the right way actually provides a nutrient in lots of um, different ways. And one is via the physical nature of nasal breathing. And so by breathing through the nose and holding the tongue in the right position, and what your mind should be going to is what's happening during sleep because if your tongue is flopping back through the day, it's definitely going to be at night. And so breathing through the nose for eight hours with the tongue uh, in the right posture is probably one of the best ways that you can make sure that your brain is receiving enough oxygen, that you're sending those right homeostatic messages uh, to the breath, to the maxilla and, and you can also remodel and make sure that your teeth aren't drifting. So likely why people today have um, uh, re relapse after orthodontic work is because we don't correct these habits. And so by shutting the mouth and by having the tongue to the roof and breathing through the nose, you can actually prevent orthodontic relapse and prevent drift of the, of, or getting crooked teeth um, by having that that good facial homeostasis. And in kids, you can correct a kid's dental arch. I've seen we uh, practice a, a method of orthodontics here called myofunctional orthodontics or orthotropics in the UK, uh, which is uh, done by a guy uh, by John New and his son, Mike New, who are very big on how the facial development and the tongue posture is very important. When you change a child's breathing, tongue posture, their face grows naturally. It's quite remarkable. And so we've lost this in, in information. It's quite uh, profound and important. And right throughout life too, not just in, in kids, but for sleep apnea and people that don't uh, breathe well, they suffer quite uh, you know, severe chronic diseases. And so do you go through some of those exercises in your book or some of those tips if, if someone wanted to visualize that a little bit more? Because what I, I got from that is that it's uh, – it's where you put your tongue in your mouth on the roof of your mouth. And I guess as an adult, that's pretty easy to think that if I'm, as I'm listening to you, I can put the, the, my tongue up at, on the roof of my mouth and how much pressure I should push. But then, as you said, the mouth breathing, and I'm guessing as an adult, 
something like mouth taping at night is one way to train myself to try breathe more through my nose. Um, even mouth, would you suggest? And if you're a computer worker and you were in an office environment where you weren't maybe publicly exposed to too many people, that to try train yourself, you would tape your mouth during the day too to try force yourself to breathe more through your nose. Absolutely, it's probably one of the most um, you know profound training you can do for yourself, and. So just gaining – so what, scientifically, one of the most interesting studies in this area is that when uh, – for people with sleep apnea, uh, when they are trained on the didgeridoo, which is the Austra- an Australian um, Indigenous instrument, they actually have found that it decreases and actually can reverse uh, the symptoms and the, um, and the disease of sleep apnea. And the reason is because they learn to use the muscles of the throat. And that's everything that we just talked about, the – uh, posture and the uh, the use of the muscles of the tongue. So when you breathe through the nose and retrain yourself to breathe through the nose with the correct posture, you can have profound effects on the body. So I would certainly recommend that people try and do this, whether it's, you know, you can seal the lips. Uh, now, eight hours of sleep is probably the most important because that's when you're getting the homeostatic uh, messages to the brain. Uh, you, uh, you, you need to go and enter the deep REM levels of sleep to clear out all of the toxins from the brain, but also obviously um, push off all the other hormonal uh, cascades that happen during sleep. And if you're not breathing right, that likely doesn't happen. So doing this through the day will help to teach you, you to breathe like this through the night and mouth taping may be a way that you, um, you, you help to train yourself to, to make sure you're not mouth breathing. Uh, but some people will struggle with that. So sometimes they need to go through a training period where Perhaps it's an hour or two through the day where you're just watching television and with your mouth taped. Um, and so, but one way that people are kind of want to go a bit further is that exercise with mouth taping. Now, going for a run with your mouth tape or doing um, interval training with mouth taping. Now, that's something that's training your body. And the, actually, the Indian Army, I think, used to, uh, and it's, it's creeping into athletic circles now where um, sealing the mouth during training and making sure that the body can cope with slow deep breathing instead of the the, uh, the fast kind of chest breathing and so that you're actually extracting oxygen much 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 more efficiently that's a profound way to kind of tweak and really biohack your body and really kind of i think it speaks to you know people who do altitude training and they learn their body learns how to adapt uh, to extract more oxygen from a, a low um, oxygen environment. And so you can train yourself to do that just by the way you breathe. And so it's quite remarkable, really. That is. And I don't think many people would go to the, have gone to a dentist who would recommend um, taping their mouth when they go out for a little bit of exercise to improve the way that they breathe at night and help things like sleep apnea. I mean, that's, that's very novel. Um, and I'm fascinated by that. I need to look more into that. But if we could come back then a little bit more to from some of the nutritional stuff, like I said, there's so many good knowledge bombs that you can share. Um, you're just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to dental health and such interesting things like we're just already talking about. But um, I know the one thing you're passionate about, which I, I, I would agree that not many people talk about and I haven't heard much about is the oral biome. So like the good and bad bacteria in our mouth, not just the good and bad bacteria in our guts. Um, could you explain how what we eat or what we choose to eat affects our oral biome. Yeah, so the oral microbiome is a, you know, it's a very understudied and underappreciated part of the human microbiome. 
And so basically, it's like the little brother of or the little sibling of your gut microbiome. And we're so focused today on you know how impactful our digestive system and the the, the trillions of bacteria in the large intestine you know in, influence uh, systems right throughout the body. But we've forgotten that at the start of the digestive system, it's, it's the mouth and the oral microbiome consists of trillions of bacteria as well. And it's interesting because we knew that. Uh, that dental diseases really were a uh, you know, attributed to bacteria long before we knew that the digestive system even had bacteria. So tooth decay, for instance, where we've seen it as an infection uh, model of decay, really is actually a loss of uh, diversity in the oral microbiome. And so we know now that there are bacteria that protect against tooth decay and there are bacteria that protect against uh, gum disease and there are bacteria that also, probiotic bacteria that um, help against bad breath and other kind of um, uh, diseases that all happen due to bacterial imbalance. So we should never see that a problem in the mouth is due to infection. Uh, that's the end um, stage. We should see how we got to that stage and really the loss of diversity. And so really the background of the oral microbiome is what we find anthropologically, which is kind of where I always go, is that, you know, when you... Um, studies have looked at uh, the dental plaque of hunter-gatherer populations that lived, you know, thousands of years before ag agricultural uh, revolution and, and farming. And so, what they find is that the plaque we had in our mouths not so long ago uh, really was uh, much more diverse than what we see today. And that's the same as the studies when they look at the hunter-gatherer populations and their gut biome today, and they see, well, they're much more diverse. And so the same thing has happened in our mouth. So what we see in a trend is that as we move into civilization and we start to get diseases of the, of the mouth and the gut and these chronic diseases that everyone has today, it's a loss of diversity. And the same perspective happens in the mouth where tooth decay, you know, we hear so much about fluoride, we hear so much about uh, brushing and flossing and Okay, they may play a role in certain situations, but the real uh, way to protect against dental diseases and also you have to remember that you swallow thousands of bacteria every second, uh, that, you know, that you need to enhance the diversity of the, the bugs in your mouth. And this is how people who, are, who live more in rural areas or tribes, I'm because I come from um, South Africa originally, and I can think of uh, people who are still very indigenous and they don't sort of have uh, modern day dental care where they brush their teeth twice a day and all that stuff. But you look at their teeth and it's phenomenal. It's kind of like the Western A Prize stuff. And you kind of think, but hang on, how do they not brush their teeth but still have teeth that look so much better than maybe a lot of European people? And, that, and you're saying... Um, when we're looking at from a biome point of view, that's what keeps the gums and the teeth healthy. It's not the actual just physically brushing your teeth. Absolutely. The oral hygiene really wasn't a part of any daily regime. You know, you, the Western A. Price went and studied, you know, 14 cultures around the world in, in this respect, and he showed that you know, none of them brush their teeth. And we know, and I'll give you another tip as well, Gary, is that I see kids today, nearly no kids brush their teeth correctly today either. So, the brushing and flossing, the way I like to put it, is like taking a car with an engine problem to the car wash. It's like, you know, it's great to have a shiny uh, paint job, but it's really ineffective when you've got a, a problem under the bonnet. And so 
What Westnet Price found is that these people had green slime all over their teeth, but they didn't have toothache. You know, they had very, very low rates. And this is the same as you know, populations all over the world, that we don't get dental diseases until we hit civilization. And then what we see then is once we've started, we've moved into the microbiome age now, once we start to analyze the, uh, the metagenome and the, um, the larger populations of what's happening in the mouth, that the loss of diversity is the problem. Because we were looking at the species that were causing decay you know, during the 20th century, but it was an idea of infection and it really doesn't speak to why. It's a very small um, kind of aspect of why tooth decay happens. Yeah. So you, the diversity and what you're saying about uh, you know uh, African tribes and hunter gatherers and people that uh, you know lived all they do is they live on a natural um, locally sourced uh, diet they eat the foods that are rich in probiotic species and also the other side of it which I'm sure we'll talk about next are the nutrients that actually protect against dental disease as well. Mm. Yeah, and so. Would you? I guess we're already going in that direction. There's going to be certain foods that are harmful to the biome, the microbiome in the mouth, and there's ones that are going to stimulate it. Um, what foods? Maybe it's easier to say. What are there any particular types of foods that you would say are detrimental to the oral microbiome? Which people? Um, so we're sort of looking at what what the best diets are. And I know you've got the dental diet. Um, if you could give some tips there that foods that people should avoid then that disrupt this this biome in their mouth. Yeah, so in the dental diet in the book, I, I try and frame um, you know, a broader understanding than just removing sugar from the diet because you know, we know that sugar is bad for our teeth. But let's start with sugar, for instance. And, you know, Why is sugar bad for our oral microbiome? Well, simple sugars that we eat today and which we are exposed to via packaged foods and uh, soft drinks and everything else that we eat uh, from the supermarket today. Simple sugars feed a certain type of bacteria in the mouth, and these are the fast metabolizing bugs. And so these are the, the bugs that cause the cave strep mutants, um, your certain lactobacillus species, and they are quicker metabolizing. So they take these simple carbohydrates and they basically spit out acid. So in the oral microbiome, that's how they begin to create a shift the acidic environment or the pH of the mouth that can then break down uh, tooth, tooth enamel. And what the, the microbiome fantastically does is it actually manages um, this balance of uh, slow to fast bacteria. So when you eat sugar, there should be a protective factor. And so simple carbohydrates, including um, so sugary drinks and all the other added sugar we get today, but the other factor is white flour. So white flour is also a simple uh, carbohydrate. It has a very simple metabolic effect on the, on the biome. So these similar bugs can uh, thrive with, um, uh, with, with exposure to white flour. And then the other factor is uh, vegetable oils. So refined vegetable oils that create inflammation in the oral microbiome and that it really is unfamiliar to anything, um, any uh, kind of bacterial species has been uh, exposed to. Those three big factors, so sugar, white flour, and vegetable oils, are the ones that will cause uh, damage. And when I say damage, loss of diversity to the oral microbiome and then the flow on effect to your gut. Okay, yeah. And I mean, those are some of the big three that people would 
eat when they have more processed foods uh, versus real foods. So it, it sounds like, and I know from reading on your website that you um, you enjoy more like the Paleolithic kind of diet. Um, but it, then if someone is more on a low carbohydrate diet or even on a ketogenic diet, would there be any issues being on those kind of diets that could af- that could negative negatively affect the f- the gums or the teeth? Would you do you think? The only thing I've seen with some ketogenic diets is that people um, they do get uh, they they can get um, issues with bad breath, so they get ketogenic breath, and so they can have a gas production into the mouth, and that. I attribute it to there may be an imbalance in the digestive microbiome and the oral to start with. And so uh, that's what I've seen certain people uh, on a ketogenic diet. But generally, the ketogenic diet really is removing the simple carbohydrates that we haven't had access to um, for a very long time in civilizations, before civilization. So I, I really, you know, the ketogenic diet is about getting back to real food, you know, understanding that these carbohydrates that we eat in packaged foods that really aren't conducive to health at all. So for the most part, it is very, very much um, beneficial to be you know, removing these things and just eating real food. Mm-hmm. And here's a good one for you is teas and coffees. So hot beverages, do they disrupt any of the bacteria or do they feed any of the bacteria in our mouth? We have to remember tea and coffee are ferments. So they are reasonably bacterial friendly. We go, um, so coffee is a ferment and t- certain teas, green teas isn't fermented, but it's a natural substance. So they, they, they actually have been shown that, um, so black tea, for instance, has, um, uh, certain antibacterial, um, uh, effects on, on the oral microbiome. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but what it shows is that it, they, it may release certain antioxidants or certain, um, phytonutrients that, uh, inhibit bad bugs. So these kind of uh, foods, and, and, you know, comes from a plant, you know, that's raised uh, in, in certain ways that is usually, um, you know, beneficial for the, the oral microbiome. So teas, I think coffee as well has had some studies that show that it's beneficial for the microbiome as well. So um, there's generally these, these, you know, unless we're, um, you know, having too much of them, they're uh, beneficial. And they don't damage the teeth in any way because some people uh, might limit their coffee intake thinking that, you know, it's mainly for the staining effect, but it, it doesn't have just the heat or um, the substance itself doesn't have any detrimental effect to the, the tooth. If you've got healthy tooth enamel, and so there's obviously some other factors there, you know, um, having hot coffee, you know, really isn't going to do any damage. Um, yeah, the, the problems start coming in once we start adding you know, kind of additives and sugars and everything else. So, yeah, there's, uh, the staining is, you know, it really is more, you know, there might be a plaque build-up factor that, that predisposes certain people to staining. Uh, but, you know, besides aesthetic, you know, there's really not a lot um, that's a problem due to uh, coffee or tea consumption. And then when it comes to fruits, are you a fan of fruit? For um, when it comes to how it affects your teeth and gums? So there's nothing wrong with fruits as such, but something I do in the book is that I take, uh, I try and uh, put a you know, perspective on fruits that you know, it really is a perspective, uh, sorry, a, a, a um, source of um, sugar 
that we really don't get a lot in nature today. So look, you know, a lot of the fruits that we see, uh, you know, on the supermarket shelf, you know, like bananas and then they weren't, they're very different for one from what they were, you know, generations, generations and generations ago. And we've grown them in a way so they're big and juicy and full of kind of, um, you know, sweet, uh, fruit juice. But they are a source of sugar that we just get far too much of. And so natural sugar, uh, you know, acts very much the, the same as, um, refined sugar, you know, fruit juice, for instance. Uh, kids, you know, today, people will have a big glass of orange juice. You're giving yourself a dose of um of uh simple refined sugar uh there because you know you don't get access to that to fruit juice in nature you know hunt together didn't go and kind of squeeze oranges and drink or or kind of um uh you know make smoothies out of uh aci berries and things like this so i try and ward people off those kind of things because it's taking the way i put it is like simple carbohydrates out of their context which is within a complex carbohydrate fibrous um, uh, casing, which fruit is, but I just try and get uh, my patients to understand that uh, fruit should be taken with a little bit of caution. Okay. And then um, I guess with vegetables there, are there any particular vegetables that uh, are not ideal um, or they should be a bit be prepared in a different way because people if they if they eat them raw it has a negative effect or if they should cook them on their teeth i like vegetables for the most part look so certain um certain vegetables you know we we our digestive system can extract more nutrients from them uh when they're cooked uh but you know for the most part i do try and encourage uh, people to have a, a you know wide range of vegetables with mixed raw and cooked because you have to remember the raw um, and the chewing factor in chewing a, a raw vegetable is beneficial because it's going to take you longer to chew and your biome has to break down that fiber. And so cooking will automatically do that. So by having raw, you know, a certain amount of raw vegetables, you know, throughout the week, you're introducing that breakdown factor and you're feeding those pro, uh, potentially probiotic bacteria that have to break down that fiber that you, um, that you introduce to the mouth when you chew on a raw vegetable. Because hmm. that was actually something I wanted to get into. I was thinking that certain foods must be more beneficial because of the chewing action, um, and that and how and I, I like how you're already saying that that also feeds into the the enzymes that need to be released as you because the longer you chew, I guess, um, is that what's happening? If you get to, as we're told, you always have to chew your food, and what you're saying is, yeah, chew your food to feed your biome, your microbiome. Absolutely, absolutely, it's um. It's very much a uh, you know factor of you know because in Ayurvedic medicine as well they used to say that you should chew once for every tooth which is like twenty times and your digestive system begins in the mouth it, it releases saliva and you know people that have you know chronic digestive uh, problems today they're likely not chewing enough the process needs to begin in the mouth and so introducing foods and you have to remember that we are really designed to kind of rip and tear and and kind of chew for long times and that does have a biological uh flow on in the body yeah um so what are your views then on we're talking a lot about good bacteria bad bacteria and trying to get that to a more healthy state um probiotics are you a fan of using those and um 
do you even get probiotics more for your mouth? Because you know, you, most people take it as a tablet to get into their gut, not actually swirl something around their mouth. So there are oral probiotics specifically for dental conditions. Um, so certain species, uh, so lactobacillus species, uh, there's a um, set of probiotics called the Bliss probiotics, the K12, uh, that actually, um, so strep, uh, Streptococcus salivaris, that is found in what they've found is they've isolated from people's oral microbiome. They have more of these bugs. Uh, and so you can get oral uh, probiotics and they can be effective for tooth decay, gum disease, bad breath. Um, now, I just like, like people to take a kind of, a, you know, take that with a grain of salt is that you're introducing um, one, one species to, you know, a, 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 it's like a grain of sand to a whole beach. So I, in certain um, people with conditions, I think that they do have a role, but really having foods like ferments and, you know, kefirs and kombuchas and uh, foods that are naturally cultured, you're introducing these species in their um, in the form they're meant to come from. So, you know, I, I, I like to try and take a, you know, you really should, uh, with the microbiome, we know so, so little comparatively to what's out there. So, you know, thinking that we're going to fix everything with a probiotic, I think is a little bit um, short-sighted. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to to get the benefit to this stuff too. You don't have to keep swirling around your mouth to think, no, I've got to physically move it around everywhere in my mouth to stimulate these guys there. It, it's just, as you said, adapt, changing your lifestyle to to expose yourself more to it rather than, yeah, trying to force it in there in one in one go. Um, I'm also interested, you know, we're always told, well, as kids with marketing was that you have to have milk for good, healthy, strong teeth. Do you think that people have to have milk? Uh, you don't have to have milk as such, but there is what I think – um, and this is what the um, Western A Price book really taught me, is that there are a certain set of foods that are absolutely critical for our teeth, and that um, is tooth decay, uh, the development of the dental arch, so crooked teeth, and these are the foods that contain the fat-soluble vitamins. And so milk and dairy is a food, and there's not many of them, that can be a source of fat-soluble vitamins. And so... Instead of, you know, people talk about calcium. Well, calcium, you know, eating comes from vegetables and, uh, you know, you can get it from bone broth or dairy or, but I don't think that's the issue. It's how your body uses the calcium is the big factor. And what's the, the major, uh, proponent to that? And it's vitamin D. And so, you know, we think now that as, uh, you know, uh, European populations moved into colder climates, they, they evolved the gene to, um, to have lact, lactase intoler, uh, tolerance. And so that's why they, uh, for instance, began to become herder gatherers and uh, begin to drink milk from a, a cow that they would keep. And if you think about it, humans have done this all over the world in sheep, in camels, in uh, goats. They, we, we, we do this and we, we drink their milk. So the important thing is to know is that what the reason why people treasure them that was for the fat soluble nutrients now milk that we get on the supermarket today unless it's been raised from a cow that's seen sunlight that's that's had grass that it's supposed to have that can convert those fat soluble nutrients a d and k2 uh into its uh you know cream and full cream milk not low fat milk uh by the way 
So there is a perspective on milk. We do have problems with it, but the reason I think uh, why people did have it for you know many many generations before us is that it was a source of these vital nutrients for our teeth and mouth. Mm-hmm. And so you are you are a fan of dairy, and as long as it is more like the grass fed dairy, uh, do you have any views then even on something that, like raw dairy, which it seems to be quite popular too? Yeah, well, I mean, raw dairy, you have to remember the pasteurization really only came in, uh, in, in in the early 20th century. And so what raw dairy is, is it, it has all of the, um, the amazingly diverse uh, bacterial species that milk is supposed to come from. So I think a lot of the problems that we have from dairy today is because we have pasteurized, homogenized dairy sitting on the, that is completely sterile compared to what comes out of a cow's udder. And that's what our digestive system was designed to have. And, you know, we've just been talking about how diversity in the mouth and gut is crucial to, um, for general good health. Well, we've taken that away via, uh, the way we, you know, boil and, and treat, uh, cow's milk down. So what we see on the supermarket shelf is very different. So look, raw milk's a difficult one because you really have to be close to the source to know that it's not going to spoil. Uh, but, the principles are there, um, probiotic bacteria, diverse, um, and, you know, uh, milk that has, has come from a naturally raised animal that's rich in fat-soluble vitamins. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, K2. If we could just talk a bit more about that then, because what are some of the natural sources of K2? Okay, so K2, uh, for those that aren't familiar, uh, is converted in animals um, from K1. So the, the molecule is called uh, a philoquinone, which is K1. K2 is a menaquinone, and there are different types of menaquinones. And so there's menaquinone 4s, menaquinone 7s. Menaquinone 4s come from your animal products, so your uh, grass-raised butter, organ meats, uh, egg yolks, uh, fatty fish, uh, and um, dairy like uh, full cream milk and uh, so forth. And so what your MK7s come from, they're bacterially derived. So they come from your natto and fermented foods. And so really there aren't many other foods that provide vitamin K2. And so the reason why it's so important is because it works alongside vitamin D. It goes along and activates proteins that carries calcium out of your soft tissues and into your bones and teeth. So you've actually got proteins that are released in your teeth that are vitamin K2 dependent. And so if you don't have enough K2, which Nearly, you know, we don't eat enough of uh, the nutrient because we've barely heard anything about it. Well, we lose that inner immunity to, uh, to tooth decay and also the, the flow-on effect is we have weak bones, we, um, we have calcified arteries, we have all these other problems that go on because we don't eat enough of this crucial nutrient. And so do you think then people who are more on a ketogenic diet with dairy and butter, are they getting... I'm guessing they're getting ample K2, are they? If you have, if it's grass-raised dairy, so if it's coming from, um, so butter and ghee. Now, the the amount of um, K2 in uh, butter and ghee is actually quite small compared to, for instance, um, organ meats or, um, well, so the richest sources. So natto has a very high source of MK7. Um, you still get K2, yes, for, though, from... Um, from uh, 
yogurts and and milk and uh, creams and whatnot, but it's got to be full. You have to remember it can't be low fat because a fat-soluble nutrient has to come with the fat package in nature, and that's how you digest it as well. So if you're having full cream naturally uh, raised dairy from a um, grass-fed animal, then yes, they will be getting enough K2. Okay, yeah, I'm just thinking um, sometimes when people on different diets, they get worried about deficiencies and, um, you know, we're talking about fat-soluble vitamins here Uh, and I'm just guessing typically when people are more on a low-carb or ketogenic diet, they're trying to eat loads more fats and so they should, in theory, be getting loads more fat-soluble vitamins. If you're having enough, I would say that in most part, yes, um, but it, for instance, I would make sure that I'm having some organ meats, uh, so some grass-raised liver. Uh, you know, uh, make sure, lots of egg yolks from again organic um, chickens, um, and you know, you making sure that your dairy is grass-raised too. And so then, I don't know if you've seen, but there's um, a, a new sort of diet that's up and coming called the carnivore diet, so the all-meat diet. Do you have any thoughts then if someone could get, and not, as long, I know you've said organ meat, but if someone isn't eating organ meats, would they maybe not be exposing themselves to enough fat-soluble vitamins by just eating um, ribeye steaks or you know sirloin steaks and fillet steaks? Uh, I think it's very possible. I think that's where you'd want to be testing your levels. So vitamin D, for one, you want to be testing. your. So if you live in the UK, for instance, um, and you're not – uh, getting sunlight regularly, which you know, obviously, nearly everyone in civilization doesn't get enough sun now, and we're chronically vitamin D deficient. I would be testing that, and to make sure, because our diets don't provide you know enough of these nutrients, and so and they all they also, you know, if you aren't eating organ meats, which every culture did, um, you know, across you can find an organ meat dish in nearly every culture. Um, so if you're not eating that today, I would test your vitamin D levels because it's a very small set of foods that you do get it from. Okay. So are you using um, vitamin D testing as a surrogate marker for vitamin K in a way? So K2, well, well K2 is difficult to test for. In the world. There are some, uh, there are some uh, tests out there in the US, I think, that are showing levels of uh, decarboxylated uh matrix GLA protein, which is the K2-dependent protein, uh, but they're not 100% effective. So, look, vitamin D, what the vitamin D levels show is that the active levels in your blood, and so what that tells you is that that's going to be activating and preparing the body for um, and filling up calcium in the body. And so that means you're going to need K2. So you can just assume that you need K2. Now, there's no mark. Of um, overdose of K2, um, what all it does is activate proteins. So D is much harder to um, convert to its active form in the body from, uh, from sunlight or from D3 from the uh, diet, but you can test that in the blood. But so you know that D and K2 go together. So if you know that your D levels are right and you're having enough K2, then you can you can kind of um, you know assume from there that things are going okay. Mm-hmm. 
And I saw recently on Twitter, you you got to reply to a question where someone was talking about um, tartar and plaque. And I wanted to ask you about that because it seems that maybe as a side effect that some people have when they are on a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet, I'm not sure if it's just particularly with those diets, but they might have a buildup behind the bottom front teeth. Um, is that would is that more on those type of diets or does everyone always have a buildup behind the, the bottom front teeth? What I find, so the, the people that have the biggest buildup behind the front teeth are people that are on vitamin D supplements. And so they usually have a chronic disease like a kidney problem or they might have some kind of um, chronic digestive problem. And so they've been given a vitamin D supplement and a calcium supplement by the doctor. And so what that does is that it boosts, they do get um, enough vitamin D and their, their body is flooded with calcium, but it cannot deal with uh, with, with all the uh, minerals throughout into the soft tissues and also yeah, the measurement in the mouth is that calcium is being balanced in the uh, saliva all the time and you need the k2 protein so this is matrix gla protein uh, to pick up the calcium and then actually take it into the teeth now if you have tartar buildup which you should only have a very light buildup, and people get very pathogenically you know millimeters of calcium uh sorry tartar and I've found that uh, it is related to their K2 intake. So if you supplement them with K2, you can reduce that um, that buildup. Whereas, you know, for years before, they would always have this caked on buildup. And, you know, you can look it up on the internet. It's that you really see some uh, pathogenically thick tartar buildup. And I think it's it's calcium buildup and lack of K2. And there might be enough D in that in that. Um, state but you you may not have enough k2 yeah i found that interesting so someone who wants to do like a a self check health check on their their teeth you know they can look for bleeding gums and just general how their teeth are and sensitivity but that build up behind the bottom front teeth is is another good market to see if if you may be needing to address something in which you're saying you do because i'm wondering we, we were talking about ancestral uh teeth they all had a bit of plaque then, did they, behind the, their bottom front, bottom front teeth because the saliva glands are there? Yeah, exactly. There's a saliva gland at the bottom of the mouth there that feeds out calcium-rich um, saliva straight onto the teeth. So we all get a bit of buildup there, but what you know kind of happens in people you know, I see in three to six months, in, in people that you know have pretty good oral hygiene, they get quite a thick buildup. It's a very thick white buildup. And so you can kind of like tip your, your face down and look in the mirror behind the teeth. It's a little bit hard to see, but you can check. If you do get that buildup, I would be thinking that you're not, your body's calcium uh, metabolism isn't probably where it should be. And the thing you should be concerned about is that one of the best markers now for cardiovascular health is the coronary calcium score. And so vitamin D, vitamin K2, they are very much linked to you know, how we remove calcium from the arteries and other soft tissues, kidney stones, prostate problems. And the reason why K2 is so crucial for all this is because it's removing it from everywhere, including that piece there. So I would definitely be, uh, you know, it's a good marker and it's, it's, it's an effective way, you know, going to the dentist and getting your, um, your calculus uh, score from them. You'll know whether your, your diet's perhaps managing calcium in your, in your uh, body as it should. So how does the calculus score work? What what would I ask a dentist there in that situation? Is it is there a specific number or range that someone wants to well, be with? Well, they will they will uh, they'll mark whether you have calcium. 
uh, Kafka's build-up. And if you do, uh, they might be able to tell you whether it's a um, – they'll measure the pocket, which is the, the pocket of the gum, but they'll also measure the uh, the amount of calcium there. And so they'll tell you whether it's a heavy build-up or – and, and so if it is if it is a heavy build-up and if you get a clean and you can feel that there's significantly um, you know gaps between the teeth, you'll know that you know perhaps that you had a little bit of a imbalance and you can tweak your diet from there and see if you can uh, prevent the buildup from there. Okay, so in that case too, um, you might, someone might notice that they have a clean and then they take vitamin K supplementation and then they don't get the buildup again in the, over the next twelve months or so, or it's significantly less. Yeah, that's I've seen that happen in quite a lot. I've seen people that have quite a uh, big buildup and then uh, once they, you know, tweak the diet and take a K2 supplement, uh, you know, even with not that much um, oral hygiene change. So oral hygiene will matter because you can clean off the pellicle off the tooth. It will stop the uh, calculus buildup. But the real pathogenic calculus buildup is your body managing calcium. It's not an oral hygiene thing. Yeah, you know, the, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this too is I love – I know I knew that the mouth has a link to the cardiovascular system, you know, and previously it was more to do with the if you had bacterial infections in, in your gum and then that could travel and cause issues with the, the valves in your heart. But just knowing too that you it, managing the calculus, the calcium buildup around your teeth is another biomarker potentially to think about from a cardiovascular point of view, from a heart health point of view is, is a fascinating health check, I think, for someone to do on themselves. Absolutely. The coronary calcium score, you know, that it's quite an expensive test to, to do, but there, there are studies out there showing that uh, it's one of the most effective in, in um, measuring your cardiovascular health. And it makes complete sense. You know, if you're getting if, um, you know, calcified arterial plaques in your, um, in your artery, you know things aren't going well. So, and, you know, that's, that's the link. And so the, the heart and gums, link has been very vague and you know that we, we thought it was based on an infection basis on um uh due to bacteria traveling from the mouth uh and mimicking certain bacteria that then cause um aortic problems and and so forth but the real cause i think is the nutrient deficiency in fat soluble vitamins yeah that's fascinating um so what's what are your views then when people try to eat sort of different pH diets, a more alkaline diet, for example. Um, is there any value in that? I don't think so. I'm not a – you know, I, I don't think that uh, – acids have a role in the mouth as well. So uh, when you have apple cider vinegar, for instance, or um, uh, when you have probiotic species in the mouth, they release acids that inhibit certain um, species. So I, I don't think that – you know, you know, maybe for certain conditions, but I think overall, you know, having a whole food diet that's, you know, across the range, making sure you, you're having enough of these um, nutrient-dense, fat-soluble vitamin foods, I think that's more of the, the core human diet rather than trying to, you know, um, balance the pH. Your body balances pH by itself, and we have trillions of bacteria that have a metabolome, um, and so letting them do their work, I think, really is the, the bigger message rather than, eating a pH, uh, you know, focused diet. Okay. And so the, no value in doing like salivary, saliva pH testing? Oh, I think that the oral microbiome is probably, I think it's one of the most exciting probably, you know, 
frontiers for biohacking because you think about what you the information you can get from your mouth. You know, it is really very untouched in terms of you know sequencing the oral microbiome and the extrapolation what you can do to the gut microbiome. And that's not taking a stool test. It's a very simple um, the saliva test. You know, we can take the our DNA testing from the saliva now. The amount of information I think we're going to take from the mouth in the not too distant future is, I think it's the future of healthcare, really. Mm-hmm. And so, so, but more to do with pH testing. You know, the the simple strips you can buy at a chemist. Would you see there's any there, value there, as there, a health check? Some, yeah, there's there, there, that can show you whether your salivary ducts are what you know your hydration levels, are their calcium metabolism. So if you do have a, um acidic pH in the mouth, I think that would, you know, it does give you some markers there at least to show that, you know, perhaps your diet or something, your body's not quite managing, uh, you know, the pH in the mouth as it should be. And then that could affect the actual um, of the teeth, the enamel and how, how they are, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, absolutely. Yeah, the pH is crucial. That's how... Um, and, you know, it, it, they control it intrinsically themselves, but the, it is a critical factor in dental disease. Okay. And a, another one for you talking about the store with the, the microbiome because that, that's um, been the focus so far is mouthwashes. And I know you you have a good point of view when it comes to should we use a, a mouthwash or not? Yeah, so I'm, I think across the board people should not use mouthwashes. And there was a study... Uh, that came out at the end of last year that showed that people that use an alcoholic mouthwash every day actually increase their risk of type uh, pre, sorry, pre-diabetes. And so the link there is that we know that we lose diversity in the gut in type 2 diabetes. And so we're showing there that if you introduce an antibacterial into the mouth uh, continuously over your life, you decrease the diversity of the oral microbiome, which communicates to the gut microbiome, then you're increasing your risk of uh, systemic disease like type 2 diabetes so you know that's one of the you know i think it's obvious you know how connected the mouth is to the gut but that's you know research really kind of planning uh panning that out for us mm. and uh oil pulling any views on that to try balance out the mouth or um to to detox well the, the research on it really isn't there but i mean logically you know, introducing a fat into the mouth. Most of the problems we have is uh, simple carbohydrates. So I think the effects on the biome of introducing a fat-based um, kind of swish, I think, probably would have a, a, a positive effect on the mouth. And it was used in Ayurvedic medicine. And But my recommendation is just to eat more fat, you know, have more fat in your diet and your teeth will be healthy because you're feeding your body what it needs. So that's really kind of what I tell people is to make eat more fat in your diet. So that's the just to sort of recap on what we've talked about because we're coming up on time I can see is that it's get a lot of good healthy fats so you can get all those fat soluble vitamins, chew your food properly so that you stimulate different enzymes produced and um, also eat that eat a diet that's going to feed that biome. Um, all of these things are going to feed back and make your gums and your teeth healthier and stronger for the long term. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, probably one other thing is you know the sourcing of your food is important too. And so you know, we talked a little bit about different types of dairy, and you know, your mouth is basically listening to everything that you you put on your plate. So it's it's remarkable how much power we have um, on our dental and, and whole body health. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Stephen, for anyone who's listening, if they want to follow you, keep up to date with you, uh, find out more, uh, what are the, some of the social links or some of the references that you would recommend for, for people to follow? So my website is www.drstephenlin, so D-R-S-T-E-V-E-N-L-I-N.com. Uh, I'm on social media at Dr. Stephen Lin. And so I try and post a lot of things about functional dentistry and, you know, the, the food and diet and, and mouth connection. Um, yeah, and so come along. And uh, so my book is available on Amazon in the UK, US, Australia, The Dental Diet. And it's a, uh, it's a journey through what we've talked about, basically, that there's a, a big story uh, that's written in our teeth about how to live a healthy life. And I'll link to all of this in the show notes for everyone. I just want to say thank you again for sharing so much information. Um, there's so much more I could pull over you, but I, 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 um, I wanted to keep it mainly around food today. So hopefully I'll get you on again to talk about some more biohacking of the mouth and, and the body. That'd be great, Gary. I look forward to it. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah.